salty ocean, off where the waves are free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Welcome to the latest episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helberg, and my co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hey, everyone. Today, we're happy to be talking with Kathy George, Director of Cetacean Conservation Biology at the Marine Mammal Center in Northern California, the largest marine mammal hospital in the world. There, she oversees research, data collection, and also responds to ship strikes and large whale entanglements in fishing gear. In fact, Kathy is kind of a whale wrangler. She's been involved in six at-sea whale disentanglements and over 50 sea lion disentanglements a dangerous rescue process that has seen death and injury to some of the people involved. As a past co-founder of California Whale Rescue, Kathy's also helped develop some of the standard practices, gear, and communications equipment now used around the world in whale rescue efforts. So amazing work. But before we get into that, Kathy, uh, just tell us how you first connected personally with the ocean. Yeah, thank you, David and Vicki. It is my pleasure to be here. I actually grew up in the Midwest in the state of Indiana, and my parents were both teachers, but every year we went down to Florida for spring break, and I got to step into the Gulf of Mexico, and I fell in love with the ocean. Fast forward to my college graduation, I moved out to California. I started my work in high tech. Actually, I have a degree in industrial engineering. So I've done a big career shift to move to the wow. whale side. But when I was contracting and not really enjoying my job, I went on a dive trip. And on that particular dive trip, I just knew that I wanted my future to be in ocean conservation. So I came back to California and did everything I could to start that movement and get that momentum to make ocean conservation my career. So big moment in your life. Where was the dive trip to and, and what did you see? Yeah, um, that trip was to the Florida Keys. And I remember seeing nurse sharks and so many schools of fish and coral. And after having done my training in Monterey and not having to wear a seven millimeter suit, I think that was all that it took on that particular trip. But I've had the fortune to dive in some pretty fabulous locations all over the world. Yeah, Monterey, it's very cold compared to Florida. And I'm hoping that when you had that experience, it was when the Florida Keys and all the corals were flourishing. Yes, they were much healthier back then. And so you came back to California, you're in the tech sector, but you want to shift. How, how'd that shift take place? Yeah, so I was talking to my coworkers and they recommended I start volunteering at the Marine Mammal Center. Um, lo and behold, another full circle there in my life. But I started volunteering and I really fell in love with the work. I was intrigued by the people I met. I loved constantly learning and I joined all the teams that I could join to learn as much as I can. And I had joined their whale disentanglement team. They had one at the time and the instructor asked me if I had ever even seen a whale. And I had to be honest and I said no. And he said, you need to come up to Alaska and spend some time with us up there. So I started spending summers up there, um, going up there, helping out with humpback whale feeding ecology projects and learning as much as I could about whales and their natural environment to help inform me when it came time to a response here in the California area. And so tell us a little about that. You uh, 
what was the Marine Mammal Center doing just and what does it do just because people don't know? And what was your first whale experiences up in Alaska like? Okay. Yeah. So the Marine Mammal Center is the largest veterinary hospital in the world for marine mammals. We primarily rescue pinnipeds or seals and sea lions from beaches and bring them to our hospital in Sausalito, treat them and release them when they're healthy. We have a great international vet veterinary training program where we bring in vets from all over the world to help build capacities in locations where there may not be a marine mammal center. Um, occasionally, we get a cetacean, which is a dolphin, a porpoise, or a whale on site. So we respond to those, but typically those animals are really sick when they come on site. Um, we started to get more reports about entangled whales off of our shore. So um, the Marine Mammal Center at one time had a whale disentanglement team with whale entanglement response is regulated by NOAA. There is a special permit that you need to be on in order to be out on a boat conducting a response. So we work with NOAA and we use the same techniques throughout the entire country and throughout the world with the Global Whale Entanglement Response Network. So um, my role with the Marine Mammal Center initially was focused on entangled sea lions and seals, which is what we saw most frequently. Um, so we would go out there, rescue the animals, bring them to shore or bring them up to the hospital, remove the disentanglement, release them, and then share that information with NOAA and others so we know what is causing the, dis causing the entanglement. Um, I took that, sorry, go ahead, Vicki. Oh, I, I just want to go back because people yeah. are probably wondering what this entanglement is. And I'm assuming it's crab lines, it's fishing lines, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on those threats. Yeah. So the entanglements that we see mostly with seals and sea lions relate to monofilament line, um, net, gill net, um, we packing straps, anything that has a loop. We've even seen a toilet seat on an elephant seal before that had its head stuck through it that it could not come off. So anything with a loop. And unfortunately, as a society, we've gotten so good at building things and making things cheaper and last longer that this is just an ever growing problem. On the whale front, we see a different type of entanglement than we do with the pinnipeds. With the sea lions and seals, it may be ocean trash that they're getting in or derelict kind of recreational gear that is thrown or discarded or lost in the ocean. But with whales, we mostly see fishing gear here in California. So I'm going to speak specifically to California. Um, we see a lot of trap gear, which is what they use to fish crab shrimp kind of bottom fish. And what that is, there's a pot that sits on the bottom of the seafloor with a vertical line that goes to the surface and one or more buoys at the surface to locate that pot. So we have vertical lines in the surface plus lines floating on top of the surface. So let's get back to your personal engagement. What, what year did you go up to Alaska with the Marine Mammal Commission? When did you see your first whales and, and yeah. how did that lead to your active engagement with this whale entanglement issue? It was probably around 2004 that I went up to Alaska to gain my experience with humpback whales in the wild. And while I was up there, I had the opportunity to respond to an entangled whale. 
Um, what it involves entangled whale response. You're always in a boat. You're never in the water. So up in Alaska, we traversed through Chatham Strait um, many hours to get to Frederick Sound to search for this whale. So most whales are free swimming. You locate the whale. And what you want to do is attach flotation onto the whale, which will help slow it down and keep it up at the surface. It's really hard to find an entangled whale, even experienced observers we can easily lose a whale in seas or if other whales come into the area. So um, we were not able to successfully disentangle that particular whale, but I was able to gain the experience of working with more experienced individuals. So when I came back to California, I had this experience. And at the time, there were not a lot of responders out here on the West Coast. What about these whales in Alaska were the first ones you'd seen? What was your impression? I mean, this is like your first oh. encounter. My experience in Alaska was mind-blowing. I remember we flew into Tenneke Springs, which is a small little city on Chichigoff Island in southeast Alaska. And we landed on the float plane. I dropped my bags on the boat that we were going to be on and immediately jumped onto a small boat to go join the rest of the team that was with bubble netting humpback whales. And within 30 seconds of being on the boat, a pod of orca went past us. Um, we did, motored another 10 minutes and had 15 to 20 humpback whales bubble netting all around us. And it was completely mind-blowing. There were bears on shore, eagles flying overhead. It was one of the most powerful experiences. I, it was fantastic. So tell us about, you came back from Alaska, you now had some whale experience and uh, we got a lot of whales off California. So uh, how, how'd you get to end up co-founding the California Whale Rescue? And what was that about? Yeah. So um, I had the fortunate opportunity to work with a number of people that were getting involved in whale entanglement response out here. We had everyone from individuals to organizations to um, folks that worked for the federal government or veterinarians. And the process of disentangling a whale, um, it requires a lot of people. So you have limited people that are in a small boat that are doing the disentanglement work. You also need to have photographers and videographers to help document the scene and the situation. Um, we need someone for safety and communications with folks on shore so everyone knows that we're okay. So there's a lot of different people that are involved in this. And it's a large geography, even here in California. Um, it, you could be driving anywhere. I've responded from Santa Barbara up to Eureka, which is over 600 miles of coastline. So um, what we found is that because the work is volunteer driven, there's not a kind of main organization. NOAA gives permission to respond, but they don't have any paid staff members as part of the response network that are available to respond at all times. So um, there were inconsistencies with kind of how things were being done or communications not happening as well as they could or recognition going to some groups and not other groups. And having spent some time in the business world before and kind of outside of this industry, I wanted to take that skill set and bring it here and help put some 
organization and structure in place and some process in place. So that way everybody was getting equal and fair recognition for their hard work because it requires a team. There's not one person that could do this work. So myself and three other people started California Well Rescue. We worked with NOAA, like what is important to you? How can we help you? Um, what information do you need from network? How can we track trainings that people are doing? And just kind of looked for gaps that were existing and put them into place. And I was very fortunate in 2019 that the Marine Mammal Center acquired California Whale Rescue and brought me on as an employee. So that's my full circle back to the Marine Mammal Center. And what happens when we get a report of an entanglement? Sometimes they come from fishermen. A lot of times we get them from whale watching groups, but we get a call that there's an entangled whale. The one thing that could be done that would ensure, would help with us achieving our success is if somebody could stand by the whale and keep an eye on it until a trained team gets on the water. So we have equipment and boats and people stationed along the coast. And we start calling people up. Okay, we have an entangled whale. Can you get out there and respond? Who's on your boat? And ideally, we get multiple boats on scene with at least three people in what we'll call the primary boat, which is the boat that approaches the whale and another boat for safety. So we see the entangled whale. We motor up slowly kind of behind the whale or to the side of the whale. And we may put up a drone if we have a drone and get video of what the scene looks like. Can we see where the entanglement is on the whale? How much gear is in the water behind the whale? Because we don't want to become part of the entanglement itself. So um, when it's safe to do so, we'll approach the whale and we'll either... We have specialized tools, so we have long poles that are in six-foot sections that we could actually snap together. So if we needed to reach 30 feet up to a blowhole from behind the whale, we can. But we'll grab the gear or look for a loop on it if it's a short line close to the whale. And we'll attach extra line and a poly ball, so a big kind of red round ball that you may use kind of to protect your boat against a dock. And we'll attach that to the entanglement on the whale. So it puts a little bit of extra line in the water and keeps up a safer distance. And what we'll do then is grab that line. We'll lift our engine out of the water. So we're in a small boat and we'll walk hand over hand and kind of pull ourselves as close. This is the whale's tail, the little notch between the fluke blades. We'll try and put the nose of our boat as close to that area as possible. And we bend the line over the bow of our boat. And you could, David could, I've been able to hold a whale for hours at a time if you use physics appropriately and kind of use that pressure point. And we'll hold on to the whale. And they call that a Nantucket sleigh ride because the whales are typically swimming <laughs> in the water. And this is whaling. This is what the whalers did to slow the whales down in the past. We're using same techniques. So we're behind the whale holding on to the entanglement that's coming off the whale. The first thing we wanna do is get photos and videos of the entanglement. So we'll use those same poles, put a GoPro at the end, kind of over, under, around the whale and capture all that footage. We'll let go of the line, kind of the whale will keep swimming, we'll drift behind, put our engine back down, go to another boat, review the footage. 
because we don't want to go out there and just start cutting lines because it may constrict a wrap on another part of the body. So we want to analyze the entanglement. And sometimes we'll even have like a plastic whale on the boat that we could wrap up and like make some cuts and see what happens to make sure we get all the gear off because we may only have one chance to make this cut. So we'll make our plan, get back on the boat, do the same technique, approach the whale, grab the line, engine out of the water, walk up, get as close to the whale as possible. And then we have special tools that we could use that are curved. The knives are curved. So if we touch the whale, it won't cause any additional damage. It won't cut the whale, but the blade inside is really sharp and lines under tension cut really easily. So um, position the knife underneath the line, it cuts it. We retrieve all the gear that came off of the whale, go to shore, and then we'll do a forensic analysis of the gear because saving the whale is great, but understanding the problem and understanding what's causing it is absolutely critical because that's what's going to inform the prevention. So then we'll- how, how long would this process take approximately? Because it sounds very detailed with lots of boats and people. Yeah, it is. It could take anywhere from four hours. Um, we've had responses that have gone- up to a month because the we have satellite tags that are integrated into a buoy that we could attach to the entanglement on the whale if we can't complete the disentanglement that same day. Um, weather shifts or it's getting dark outside and we need to leave, we could put a satellite tag on the whale and we could monitor where the whale is. So we've been able to respond at future dates, but the whale has to be within range of a vessel. <laughs> and conditions. So that key boat, that uh, boat that's basically parked between the whale's tail, I assume that's like a rigid hull inflatable, a Zodiac type raft. And have you been on those? Uh, and have you been there when a whale's actually cut free? Yes, I have. So um, we have a rigid hull, but most of our boats that we use are soft bottom inflatables. And I have been on there um, multiple times when we freed a whale and it is an absolutely incredible feeling. Um, yeah, it's, you just saved the life of this amazing animal. So it's quite powerful. And the one experience that really stands out to me is we were working on a entangled humpback whale in the Monterey area, and it was recently entangled. And we could tell that because of the injuries on the whale. And also it was very active. It had been Every time we grabbed a hold of that line coming off the whale, it started swimming in circles. So like our boat was going in circles around it. And I remember being in that point position on that boat and holding that line and it being really hard to hold that line. And all of a sudden the line went slack. And I knew that what that meant was the whale was directly underneath us. And I think what happened, and it never once touched the boat. I think kind of what happened is it wanted to see what was happening and kind of slowed down and took a look and then kind of moved back out. But we eventually freed that whale. And yeah, it's a joy. I mean, part of the reason I love this work is the people that I get to work with and to have a shared success. So in 2017, Joel Howlett, who is a lobsterman and whale rescue volunteer up in uh, Canada, um, actually created an endangered right whale. But then as it was diving, its tail hit him. He was killed. Um, after that, NOAA kind of banned whale rescue in uh, the U.S. for a time. So it's 
it's clearly a, a risky activity, but um, but very necessary. How how have things changed in terms of the procedures and efforts to protect personnel? And uh, and then maybe we can talk about what's happening in in general with uh, whales at risk. Yeah, that was an incredibly tragic event when Joe was killed, and it did put a pause on all whale rescue work in our country in Canada. And our focus has always been human safety is number one priority, and it should be that way and continues to be that way. We had a situation in California where we had a humpback whale that had been anchored in multiple entanglements up in the Crescent City area shortly after that happened and during the time period when Noah said we would not be responding. Um, I did not go out on that particular rescue, but some of our team members did, and they had to go through extra training in order to participate in that. There's communication with shore support and with NOAA regularly. So things that have changed since that time frame is we have more training requirements from a responder perspective. Um, we're always evaluating our equipment to see where we can improve it safety-wise and making sure that we're permitted people are the only ones doing this work. You have a lot of, I mean, we have a lot of whales, different sizes, but you know, there are baleen whales, there are toothed whales. Do you have different techniques to work with the different types of whales? And then of course you even have the East coast whales and the West coast whales. Um, tell us a little bit more about technique, how you differentiate your approach and maybe there isn't a difference. Yeah, no, there's definitely a difference. Um, I've participated in gray whale and humpback whale disentanglements, and those ones weren't too different technique-wise. Each individual response is different, but we have had orca entanglements. And for example, with orcas, you don't want to be holding on to the orca, like the entanglement coming off the whale while the whale is swimming. They're much more sensitive in that way. So kind of minimizing the contact you have where the whale may be pulling you or pulling gear that you've put on the whale to slow it down. So there's different, definitely different techniques. And fortunately, we have not had any right whale entanglements in the Pacific. Um, those whales are exceptionally difficult to work with and require advanced permission to do that work. Yeah, well, they're so endangered, the right whales, whether or not the East Coast or the, the West Coast. So it's yeah, it seems very complex, but I wanted to pop in because David wanted to talk a little bit about some of the bigger problems that we're having with whales. And, and you know, we're imagining, you know, entanglements and strikes, but take us a, a, a kind of a higher level to talk about threats to whales in general. Yeah, so um, the top two human impact on whales are entanglement and vessel strike. And vessel strike like, is another area that I'm currently working on right now. And I do want to say both from the entanglement and the vessel strike side that industry partners are absolutely critical to helping reduce the risks in finding solutions. I work very closely with the fishermen on the entanglement side, and they don't want to entangle whales. And on the shipping side, I'm working with the maritime industry to find ways that we could reduce those risks together. So um, those are the top two threats that are caused by humans on large whales. Um, climate is also another threat. Our climate is changing and 
where whales are going, where their prey is located, how long they're staying in certain areas is putting them in locations that they haven't been before. And when the food is there, it can overlap with human use of the oceans and where this co-occurrence of humans and whales in the same area increases the risk and leads to more of those human-caused impacts. And we're seeing less prey in certain areas, like with gray whales in the Arctic. Um, they've lost 40% of their population over the last two years because the prey is not as abundant as it was up in the Arctic due to climate change. Wow, 40%. And what is their primary food up in that region? They like the shrimp. Small and crustaceans is what they like. And with the warming ocean, as you say, prey uh, is migrating. So their migrations for the whales is taking longer, the starvation. But there's there's many changes off of California in terms of whales. We've We've seen the decline of gray whales, but also a lot more blue whales, the largest animal to ever exist on the planet. And in recent months, there's been a whole couple of pods of orcas, of killer whales off Southern California. So what what are, what's the reports you're getting? What's our whale status in California these days? Yeah, um, our, our whales are improving. We're seeing growth in humpback whale populations. Um, Blue whale is stable to growing. So it's really exciting. And we're seeing these transient populations come in that we haven't seen previously. So there's a lot of hope out there and there's a lot of excitement, but it's also just a cautionary tale because there's more people and climate change is increasing the co-occurrences of whales and and, and threats to them. And, and people recently, because... The orcas in Southern California are getting more videos of orcas preying on dolphins and going after gray whale calves. And uh, so we're, we're seeing uh, that even the whales are not all um, peaceful hippie creatures. Yeah, no, um, we just launched Whale Safe San Francisco, and there's a similar system in Santa Barbara that if you go to whalesafe.com, you can, they have a real time acoustic buoy that listens for blue fin and humpback whales, and it can tell you what whales have been present during the past 24 hours. So really a nice, unique way to be able to know what whales are here. What kind of guidance would you give young professionals who are really interested in this topic? I would say listen and learn. <laughs> that would be the most important thing. I think that um, that has been my always been my mantra when I'm coming into the conversations. Um, sit and hear as many di- diverse viewpoints as possible. Have conversations offline. Attend meetings. Listen to what's going on out there. Look at the science. But really listen to each other. And if I'm a young person wanting to uh, be a whale wrangler, um, I can come to the Marine Mammal Center and find you there. Yes, you can. We have a lot of volunteer opportunities at the Marine Mammal Center. Um, we don't have any right now on the whale side, but we hope to in the future. But volunteering is a fantastic way to get involved and learn, and most importantly, connect you to people that you may need help with in the future. And lots of seals and sea lions that need rescuing and end up there at your center. Yes. Yeah, we're open to the public. You could come and visit us at Look at marinemammalcenter.org. I'd like to thank you so much, Kathy, for your dedication to protecting marine mammals and all of your hard work. And thank you so much for joining us on the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure being here today. 
Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.